pianist, and uh, he's going to make this thing sing this morning, okay? And tell us a little bit about, about a story. So, Graham, we're glad you're here this morning. Why don't we pray for Graham? Brown, will you pray for Graham? Sure. Thank you so much, Lord, for this time together. And uh, we just uh, look forward to hearing the word uh, spoken through Graham and through his music. And just let it be an encouragement to us. And uh, we just thank you for his uh, presence this morning as well. Uh, amen. amen. Graham Bergen, B-U-R-G-A-N. Correct. Right. Yeah. You've got another pianist who comes to your church who I know her well. It was always confusing because um, we've crossed paths in a number of circles, but her name is Bergman. Same spelling with an added M. And the number of places I've been where there's been confusion over that, it's <laughs> always been an issue. But thank you so much for having me here. And um, yeah, first of all, I want to thank you to your church as well for your ministry. Because my wife and I, with our kids, I've got three boys, they're six, four, and two. And uh, we were here for a year, and it was a time for us where I had been on staff in a church. And then my main job, amongst other things right now, I'm a director of a, a Christian summer music program called Chehi Summer School of Music. And I stepped down from my staff position in the church. And during that time, having been on staff and leadership in the church, it's a bit of an adjustment for where you serve. And uh, we'd been to a few different churches during that time, but especially the year while we were here, God answered prayer for us in terms of bringing us back to the church where I used to work. And uh, it, just so that all of you know, and it, uh, I know that a few of you would understand some of the dynamics, but having been in leadership in a church, just to sit in the congregation without assessing everything on a Sunday is a hard thing to do. Uh, but while we were here, first of all, just the preaching of the word and the community and the fellowship and uh, those of you that I got to know during that time, uh, it really was a particular encouragement. So even though we haven't settled here at the church, I do thank you. And yes, church with the capital C for what it continues to mean that we are all in the same gospel business with this. So this morning, I'd like to share with you from a couple of different perspectives. I do want to just give you a bit of my life story and life testimony and where God has taken my own parts. Uh, I originally grew up in Australia and uh, now over on this coast. I'll give a bit more of that journey in a bit. But I also want to talk about, us, about the summer music program, about Chehi, because it really is a ministry of my heart. And uh, of course, anybody who has kids that might be interested in it, I'd love to let you know, but I'm not here for promotion. I'm here for testimony because I believe how desperately the work is needed in terms of where kids find their identity in Christ. So I'd like to share about that as well. And then at the end, I want to talk a little bit about just what it means for guys especially and what it means to sing. <laughs> Make music in the church. And I hear the excuse, why well, you don't want to hear me sing and everything else. I've got a few things I'll talk to you about a bit that later, but about what that ringing cry of praise to all of the work that our God has done. So I'll touch on that at the end. But before I t share my life story, what about if I just start off with a little bit of music? Now, if I play and sing a song for you, I've always loved this song that Fernando Ortega recorded, Hear Me Calling, Great Redeemer. Fly upward while the wind blows. 
My life journey, I grew up in a uh, small country town in Australia, South Australia, and it's a big lead smelting town, uh, the biggest lead smelting plant in the world. And my dad lived there for 40 years. And uh, yeah, one of the things I remembered as a kid is growing up all the time with uh, all of the seminars for kids even in elementary school, middle school, and just explaining about risks of lead poisoning. And I always say, my dad retired when I was 14 and moved up to the city. And uh, so at 14 years of age, I got away from all the lead pollution. So I explained that's why my brothers, who are older than me, they were there till they were 18. So it explains the difference between them for another four years of lead pollution. But, um, but uh, yeah, growing up in that small city in Australia, it's like, I'll tell you what, America seemed like such a far away place. And everything I learned about American culture was from the sitcoms and everything else that uh, certainly gives interesting perspectives on America as you look at that. But um, as a kid, growing up in that country town, one thing, I just sat every day and played piano. I was given piano lessons when I was a kid. Uh, my parents, they uh, gave piano lessons to all of my siblings. They always wanted to give the opportunity to us that they never felt they had themselves. My parents both made music, but they were never trained. And uh, I actually grew up in a Salvation Army uh, church. Um, and I know a lot in America don't realize it's a church because it's a social work. It leads with the social arm, but it is for a gospel purpose. And the whole principle underneath the Salvation Army is heart to God, hand to man. And how can you preach to somebody if they're sitting on the side of a street freezing or in need of a sandwich? So growing up in that culture and watching my parents' example and watching their ministry example throughout my life and going with them to nursing homes where they forced me and dragged me kicking and screaming to sit there and play the piano for dad to pick up his cornet and mum to sing to all the residents there. And, but I remembered that example as I saw them just continuing to just simply preach the love of Jesus and to, uh, in their life and without the musical training, to express that musically. So that was a big part of my upbringing. I'm also the youngest of six kids. So my parents had five kids in seven years, and then me 11 years later. So uh, really, I've got all the worst attributes of youngest child and only child, all wrapped up in one. But uh, my older brothers there in the 1980s, though, were in a, uh, a rock band that, especially when my second oldest brother, when he became a Christian, they decided to head that towards the schools with Christian ministry. So I was there as a you know, little 11-year-old and like watching around as my brothers were there doing the whole high school circuit with their band called Heart, Mind and Soul. And I remember hearing my brothers even on radio being interviewed and like, why the name Heart, Mind and Soul? And it's like, worship your God with all your heart, your mind and your soul. <laughs> and uh, hearing that kind of example in my brothers as well. So I grew up in a really strong musical culture, but none of my family or siblings were professional musicians in that. Uh, as I went to college, my later couple of years of high school, I was really torn. Um, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I love music. I'd sit there and play piano for three hours every night, mostly to avoid everything else in study. Um, I still did really well in grades, though, but I'm hearing my parents, where three of my older siblings were all in finance, one of them a government consultant and uh, economics advisor, another one who had a very successful cash flow accounting software business, another brother who was the head of finance for Woolworth Supermarkets in Australia. So I'm always hearing this and I'm watching musicians and going, every musician I know who's a really good musician, they're really broke. How does anybody make a living out of this? <laughs> um, and as I'm heading towards that, 
Australia's system is very different. You don't go and tour seven or eight different colleges. You basically do your final exams in your last year of high school, and then you actually put down on a list which colleges you'd like to go to. And then they rank them and go through a system based on your grades, and the application goes through that. So my top five was English. Uh, not English. That wasn't my interest at all for college. Uh, it was economics, engineering, music, and then two others in finance and engineering again. So I had no idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> but I looked at it and going, I love playing music, but I'm too scared I'm not good enough and I don't know how you can make a career out of it. I also saw how proud my parents were of my older siblings in their finance careers. And uh, that just seemed to be stable and made sense. And saw my dad's example with his hard work through his years. Uh, working for this lead smelting plant and designing all the buildings around there and having a nice, long, um, solid career in the workforce. Uh, but I also felt a tug on my heart towards ministry. And I remember when I was 16 or 17 and talking with my youth pastor, and I didn't know what that meant at the time, but I felt a calling towards ministry. So in the end, I wound up going and studying an economics degree, still playing piano three hours every night, and I was playing things in churches and uh, being asked to play for music theatre productions and that kind of thing I just did for fun on the side. So I kept on still being really active and busy in music. So I had those three years of college studying economics. I started a double degree in law. Really, to be honest with you, I had no idea why except it seemed really cool that uh, I was getting the grades to get into the double major in law and that seemed to be in some ways the badge on the chest that gives you an identity, that uh, gives you something that seems of something of importance. By the time we got to mock trials, I worked out I did not want to be a lawyer. <laughs> and uh, when I finished the economics degree, I had a um, career for seven years in the insurance industry in Australia, working as a business analyst. Still playing for music theatre productions on the side, still going around at churches and playing and working in that. but. Um, so through those years uh, working in the insurance industry, I had a good career in that, but I still felt this tug both for music and ministry, and I didn't know what that meant. Uh, but after about five or six years, that was getting stronger, and especially I was doing a lot of travel, and I'm sitting with one of the biggest insurance companies in Australia, and I'm sitting with their national operations manager, and you know, you know that you've got an obsession you can't let go when the conversation on the table keeps turning around to it. So we always wound up talking about something about music and his boys who were three were starting to learn violin and I was always trying to catch the early plane to go back to Adelaide, Australia because I um, was always going back to conduct a church youth choir or I played in a jazz swing band and um, through all of that, my work, even my travel, I revolved around getting back to the things I was doing musically. Uh, so I got to a point where uh, even though my career was on a very good trajectory. I was looking at moving to Sydney to the head office for that. But I really wanted to pursue this interest in, is there a ministry calling here? And my interest in music. So I was sitting down with my uh, pastor of my church and my brother and was just uh, pouring out my heart to them about, okay, I don't know where I sit with this. <laughs> and uh, having got all the business experience and that's all in a good direction, but I still feel this tug. I felt like I was doing so much music, but I felt so lacking in my biblical knowledge. So I went to a small Bible college there in Adelaide, and uh, while I was there for about a year, I was on the, put on the phone with, in my pastor's office, 
and he introduced me to a staff member at uh, what is now Karen University. It was PCB back there in 1999. And uh, does anybody know Wayne Lynch? So there's a few of you who know Wayne Lynch. Here's the reason I'm in America. I had no idea who he was, but he was friends with my pastor. <laughs> and uh, they had met each other at Dallas Seminary. And he's sharing with me uh, because my pastor knew the mixed interests that I had. And he told me about this Bible college in Pennsylvania that has got a, a very good master's in biblical studies, but they've also got this pianist by the name of Samuel Shu. Yeah. I started looking up the website, saw things about the program, and it was bizarre to just pack up my bags and go to the other side of the world where I knew nobody except this name of this guy, Wayne Lynch, whoever he was, and then packed up and came over here. So I never thought I was gonna to go to America, and it was just that one introduction and this name of this individual of this little Chinese pianist. So I came over to PCB. Interesting for my journey as a kid who just sit there and play piano for hours at night, too scared to, when I was 18 to go to a college for music because I thought I wasn't good enough. But then when I went there to PCB, sure, I was a graduate school Bible major, but I spent more time in the music halls. Yeah, I got my Bible studies done. I passed the master's in Bible, but I was in the practice rooms all the time. I started accompanying for recitals. Um, I took lessons in conducting. I toured with the chorale. And I found a friendship with the music students while I was there, but also an example in the music faculty that really connected to my heart in terms of a ministry perspective. So while I was on the pathway that I thought I was going to be a pastor, looking at um, shaping up for going back to Australia and putting in my application for um, being a pastor in a church, I started to see the example of music professors and music teachers, that with every lesson, with every interaction, their ministry of the gospel into my life, both the encouragement as well as the challenge and where necessary rebuke, became an impact on my life that has been as much as any pastor has been on my life and the integrity of them who were not calling themselves pastors, but to live the gospel in what they were doing as musicians. So for me as a kid who was always obsessed about music, then to actually see that and live that and breathe that and have people impact my life in that way, that became something that just became an anchor in my perspective on lay ministry. So while I was there for those two years, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. <laughs> I finished the master's in Bible. I went back to Australia. I started putting in a few applications for a few churches. Nothing actually quite came together in terms of the jobs I was looking at. But I went back and did a bit of business work again, picked up a few contracts with an insurance company for my converting databases as they transitioned software systems. But uh, then I found this small church where there wasn't a job offer. But it was a church plant that was about five years old in a surf, surfing seaside, semi-retirement, semi-booming, where young singles and young married couples were moving out to the area. And he said, I need a guy to help with youth ministry. I need a guy to help with music. And, um, and I had met him a couple of years before I moved over here the first time. But uh, then I started supporting with that church and just being part of it and found just really good friends in that community and just saw the opportunity there just to find a church home for the years that I was back in Australia. While I was doing that, 
I had people starting knocking on my door for music opportunities, which I wasn't approaching. It started off with a trumpet player who said his pianist had bailed. I can't remember why, but a pianist dropped out on his recital, which was in nine days' time. And uh, he heard from somebody who had one of his other friends. I'd played for him about 10 years before that and wanted to know if somebody could pick up the music in nine days and play it for him. So, okay, let me meet you tomorrow. Show me the music. I'll see if I'm crazy enough. And I was crazy enough. So um, I dived in there and played his recital. And then about three months later, I was getting contacted by the University of Adelaide and asked if I would be the accompanist for the brass department and play for all of their master classes and recitals. And, and, uh, and so I, just the way that God opened doors at that time, I wasn't applying for any jobs. But this passion I had for music, suddenly I was doing it full time. <laughs> and I remembered uh, sitting there with the head of the brass department. He was the bass trombone for the Adelaide Symphony. And uh, he was asking me a couple of questions, but I had come from doing insurance contracts where I had to convert a database of $250 uh, million a year revenue, convert it from one system to another, where they've got about 200 branches Australia-wide. You have to do it in one weekend and be up by open of business the next Monday with minimal errors. Um, and I was saying something about uh, not being stressed about getting a concerto ready in three days. And uh, he was like looking at me going, compared with a $20 million agent breathing down my neck, I like this. <laughs> and it's funny as a, as a musician because one of the things about musicians, we can get so caught up in our fear of failure and in many ways, understandably so, because when you do a contract with an orchestra, you can't mess up too many times <laughs> or you won't get called back. But at the same time, as a musician, if we mess up, what is at risk other than our pride? <laughs> I remember uh, at a master class I was playing for at Westminster Choir College, and there was an opera singer who was singing. He was a bit nervous, graduate student, fabulous voice. But the lady running the master class just turned around to him and said, your friends that you went to school with, how many of them are lawyers, how many of them are doctors? If they mess up, what happens? <laughs> if you mess up, nobody dies and nobody goes to jail. Get over yourself. <laughs> I'm lucky I wasn't the guy that was up there for the master class. I was able to like, yeah, okay, take that advice. But I'm realizing more and more as I work with young musicians and even as I work with my own heart, whether it's my pride or my insecurity, that same advice ringing true about how fickle I can be in terms of fear of failure and how much my own identity can be wrapped up in who I am as a musician and my latest success or the last performance when things are ringing through your ears and something wasn't the way that you wanted it to be. And that is where the, one of the biggest battles of a musician relates to their own identity in who they are. So in my own testimony, that's been a large part of it for myself. Uh, often I joke to say my biggest issue was just trying to work out what I was going to do when I grew up and I still haven't grown up. So <laughs> going from business towards ministry towards music. But as God, as I have seen him work through my life and things that he placed before me 15, 20 years ago that I'm now using, especially in my work with directing Chehi, realizing how he has brought things together and set up a pathway that I didn't realize 15 years ago, 20 years ago. But with the experiences with that, that while I thought it was going to be working in a church and being a pastor and picking up and preparing God's word every week, but to use what he prepared me with, with business, 
uh, even though the real reason I went for a business degree was fear because I wasn't good enough for what I really wanted to do. The ministry calling he'd put on my heart that wasn't necessarily, necessarily for a professional pastorate, but a way that there's an opportunity to continue to just proclaim God's word and what it means to be rooted in the gospel of Christ, as well as my love for music, to bring it together in a way that uh, has had so many interesting pathways through that. Uh, what I do now is, like, Chehi Summer School of Music is my main job. And I run the office from home, but I also visit churches, I visit schools, uh, and continue um, both running our administration throughout the year, but also networking with donors and preparing our publicity during the year. But uh, in addition to that, I'm on faculty at Cairn University. So during the school year, I teach there two days a week. So I teach a number of piano students, and I also teach some classes in music and the church, history of worship, and um, subjects along those lines. And I also work as a freelance musician, so whoever pays, basically. But uh, one of my main jobs with that is with the Allentown Symphony. So playing for Allentown Symphony, uh, last year I was the acting principal pianist. Their pianist took a year off, so I had the contract to play for every concert through the season. Uh, I always play in terms of preparation for their choirs throughout the year, and when they've got guest soloists playing the conductor's rehearsal, if they need two pianists in the orchestra playing for them. Um, and in the musician life, where you run from gig to gig, from that to playing for somebody else locally, um, head up to New York or Philadelphia for different um, events. But it's interesting for musicians because most of the lives for musicians that are working and trying to pay their rent through that, you're picking up different jobs from different areas. And when you get to tax season and you're listing the number of W-4s and 1099s that are on there, uh, that you start to realize that paperwork at that time. But as I've worked through that, and I'm very thankful for my wife and my kids that as we work through what it looks like with a schedule that's not exactly nine to five, but at the same time as I've realized where God has prepared my pathway, both in terms of a ministry context as well as working as a professional musician, how the desires that were on my heart, he planned a way that was uh, something I never imagined in that. So I want to read a Psalm 121, especially uh, as I was preparing for grad school auditions. Uh, this is something that I prayed. I'm not going to have it up on the screen. I'm bringing that up um, for something else in a moment. But Psalm 121, one of my teachers in Australia, magnificent teacher, after I finished at Cairn University and I went back to Australia, uh, I was introduced to this teacher who had um, studied for four years in France at the Paris Conservatory. And uh, when I went to him to study, he really prepared me for my professional level of technique. I had a great couple of years with him. He was an interesting character, though, because he was also, in his own musical journey, he finished his doctorate in Australia, studied with one of the top educators in Paris, but also he was disillusioned with the musical world. And he left from that, and he spent years in a Buddhist uh, monastery. And he studied Buddhist meditation. So a lot of what he does is he trains people in meditation. And so it was interesting, while I'm studying piano technique with him, and it was really interesting hearing some of the outlook and philosophy of life. One thing that challenged me as I watched him, because was his contentedness and the way he was centered in life. And it challenged me because I thought, how often do we miss that as believers? What was interesting with that was when he heard where I studied and he heard uh, that I studied theology, he was a bit interested. Then he heard I studied theology at an evangelical college. 
He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> so even in that interaction, that opportunity to brush up between evangelical Christian faith and to have a piano teacher who um, studying meditation was his hallmark on life. One thing that that challenged me on <coughs> as I prepared for grad school studies. A couple of psalms that come to mind. Psalm 1, meditate on his word day and night. So they can be meditating on emptiness and breathing and centeredness and connected with the universe, but to meditate on God's word day and night, something that is eternal, not something that's temporary. So as I prepared for grad school auditions, here's a psalm that really helped me during that time. Psalm 121, that from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will, not, will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time and forevermore. Every time before I would do an audition, I would pray over that psalm. One verse that struck out to me, especially as a pianist, is that verse that says, he will be the shade on your right hand. <laughs> and my understanding of the psalm on that is also looking towards psalms written by David, what it meant to be prepared for battle. <laughs> They've got a shield. That hand's protected. <laughs> but when you come out to strike with a sword, the right hand's going to be exposed. <laughs> Really, as I looked at what it meant to be prepared, do everything, practice, have the confidence that you know you're focused and you're ready to play and you're ready to perform. Need some protection on that right hand <laughs> as you make yourself vulnerable. And the number of times it says, he will keep you, he will keep you, he will keep you <laughs> in that psalm. And that just became a constant blessing as I would be reminded again and again I can be obsessed with my own pride or my own insecurity and fear of failure. But who else is my judge? The Lord alone is my keeper. Why do I have anything else to fear, including that which is within myself? So working through that, that has been a huge blessing to me in my own life journey. And then to see also as I went to... Um, I came back to America in 2008. So after another seven years back in Australia, I had a music career that was developing. At that stage, I still hadn't done a music degree. <laughs> and that's when I came back and I started doing those graduate school auditions. So I came back here in 2008, and it also happened that when I was coming here for auditions, I happened to meet a girl from Bucks County, uh, meet or conveniently introduced by friends who were hoping that I would move to America instead of go back to Australia. But uh, my wife grew up in Doylestown, and uh, I, so we... In that year before I moved back here to study, we started getting to know each other over the phone and over email. And then when I came back here to study, within a year of starting grad school, we were married. And uh, thrilled to be here. And uh, even though I miss the beaches, I miss the coffee in Australia. Thank you for the coffee this morning. It was great, by the way. But <laughs> the, the Greek and Italian restaurants in Adelaide, I will say, any of you who go to Australia, Adelaide, and even though I'm from Adelaide, Melbourne's coffee is even better. 
So the Italian and Greek immigration that came into Australia in the 60s and 70s, they knew how to bring in a great coffee culture then. So, but uh, even though I miss the beaches, the seasons here, a beautiful area to live. I, uh, I'm loving this being home and that with uh, my family and now the challenge of watching my boys being raised and finding some of the things where I'm realizing more of my Australian perceptions on life and realizing my boys are growing up in what is subtly a different culture, <laughs> even though we're very similar in many ways, but especially the way the education system runs and so on. Um, but you know, being in a new phase of life where I never thought I'd be on this side of the, living on this side of the world. But uh, for God to bring things together in a ministry context in the work that he's got for me, um, I'm day, on a daily basis challenged by that, but also thrilled as I see his blessing and leading in that way. I want to tell you a little bit about Chehi Summer School of Music. And again, I want to say, of course, my job as executive director of Chehi, I want to share it with everybody. <laughs> but I'm not going to spend too much time promoting it. But I do want to show you our video, partly because this video was put together by uh, one of the kids from Calvary Christian Academy. So um, one of Daryl's students. And it happened because I went to the school to share about Chehi a year and a half ago. And he said, Graham, have you seen the way Zach does videos? <laughs> have a look at this. This is what he did from the last um, retreat. So I put Zach on the job. Here's what really blessed me of watching a 17-year-old trombone-playing camper put together the video. I just said, here's our brochure. <clears throat> Can you capture that with the words of campers? So in terms of what Chehi is, the campers pick that up better than I can say. And even more so, the words you hear from the campers, when I first came across Chehi Summer School of Music in 2001, I was saying the same things. So the blessing in terms of the ministry impact of that. So if you don't mind, I'm going to play it on here for a moment.
closer and then I just met so many new people and it was a great experience. I wanted to show you that uh, was partly to ask you to pray for our campers, pray for our faculty and staff. When I look at what the real why in terms of everything with Chase, it's a summer music program, yes, and we run it and minister it through the year. For, and high, a lot school of people for high school For students. high school and middle, middle school. school. Yeah. And we had 297 kids there last summer, as well as all of our faculty and our counselors. That word that I used before, identity, has really been something that's been on my lips and on my heart more and more. And as we look at, in the idolatry of this world, everywhere else that we are told by the world we should place our identity. And that includes, and especially for these kids, as musicians. How much feels like it's at stake as a musician. And not all of our campers are heading towards music careers. Maybe there's a third of them who might be heading towards college for music but um, they're all there because they have a love for music. But whether identity is based in their musicianship, whether it's based in our resumes, our success, our status, the house on the curb, <laughs> how our house looks compared to the neighbors, uh, whether our identity is built in our relationships, and one of the biggest things that continues to be uh, thrust on us with media right now is identity and sexuality. As we look at everything else in that, Identity and nothing else but the gospel of Jesus Christ will last. And that is on my heart more and more with these kids. Also for our faculty and our counselors. Because the temptation of idolatry or pleasure seeking in this world are the things that do not last. Not all of them are bad, but it's still idolatry if it takes the place of the throne of God. And that is my prayer in that. And in that work and in where God has paved that pathway for me, with Chagy being my main uh, ministry, that really is my heart cry in that. But the truth is it applies to all of us in that. In that particular case, for those who are young musicians, yes, there's a particular focus. But for all of us, the subtlety of us finding our value and our worth in anything else but the gospel of Christ. Whatever pathway God has for us, we pursue it with everything God has given us but for that to not define us and to continue, continue to be rooted and grounded. One of the, the frames in that video that really blessed me is watching a camper take notes. And you can even see the name of the chapel speaker, Bill Cliff. He's from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, pastor of a Presbyterian church, and writing rooted and grounded as he preached from Colossians. And that just continues to stay in my visual memory as I think about this for the campers and pray for them. So. Now, I'm realizing time's almost 9.30, and it's gone quicker than I thought. There's one thing I want to share with you folks as well. Um, 
I did want to talk about relationship of what it is for us to sing in the church. So, completely different trajectory, but very much on my heart as well. I teach a few classes at Karen on music in the church, and I love working through the whole philosophy about the relationship of it with the church. One thing I do want to say is, uh, especially for a lot of you who have been around church for a good number of years and so on, those who might be newer in the church, it's kind of an interesting dynamic that we have these people come together and sing. It doesn't happen in too many other places in society. But one thing is I look at church history, uh, especially the last 30 or 40 years, the church has spent a lot of time wrestling and arguing in some respects over style and genre. And this whole thing of like traditional, contemporary, or maybe it's high art versus pop music or whatever else. I want to put this out there as a thought, and I want to show you another video of something completely different. We look at the high arts, and that's where people sit back and sit in an audience to contemplate. <laughs> there's pop art, and there's a, a, a guy from Yale University who writes on this, about the concept of contemplative high art, pop art, which is for entertainment, which it can be a very good thing and is part of life, but talks about church music in the context of what he calls tribal art. The music that defines a tribe or a group of people. And um, one of the best examples outside of the church of where I see that, I don't think American sports does this nearly as well. So I'm going to risk offending you here. Australian rules football. <laughs> Last Saturday was the grand final. It's as big as the Super Bowl. Well, at least on an Australian context. But um, we, they had the Richmond Tigers playing the Greater West Sydney's Giants. And my boys were up with me at 6 a.m. watching that last week. So. This is last year's preliminary final after the Richmond Tigers won. Yeah, so let me push the play button there. This is in the crowd with 95,000 people. <laughs> if you want to learn about the game, you can talk to me afterwards. So. <laughs> Not the team I followed. They beat my team two weeks ago. That's why my team wasn't singing. So 95,000 people in a football stadium like that singing the victory song. The music of a tribe, yellow and black, and they shout out yellow and black with their fists in the air. Something is an example that describes what tribal music is, as opposed to high art or pop art. I used to have season tickets to the football when I was in Australia. Now I try to watch it online. And, uh, but um, being in a football stadium like that, with 70,000, 90,000, 110,000 people, there is, that is a heightened experience in terms of seeing what it's like. For people who would not call themselves singers, but they are yelling the victory chant. 
Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> as I work through, especially because I'm a professional musician, I'm a classical pianist, but I also play jazz, I play pop, I've led a lot of uh, contemporary music as well, played in a jazz swing band. But something in terms of the relationship of music and culture and bringing together a tribe. One last thought I wanted to leave with you is as we look at that relationship where we kind of separate, that this idea of a concert stage is only about 300 years old. Before that, music was related in culture and built of relationships. We kind of separated the elitism of musicians. And of course, I love that, I do it. <laughs> I enjoy being on stage and having the spotlight and like you know, 300 people, 500, 2,000, whatever in the audience. But really at the heart of what it is like to make music and for it to be part of culture and part of life. If that is a victory chant for a football team that hadn't um, been in a grand final for 40 years and they were going to the grand final the next week and that was the excitement of their tribe, how big the victory for a saviour who went to the cross, satisfied and defeated death itself, not only that, but his promise because of what he has paid, which was our debt. But he has paid the price for us that we can look in the face of God and to say, I bear the mark of Christ. And that we see that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father advocating and saying, it is finished. I have paid that debt. Not only that, but he is returning again to finish all that he has promised. If that's the victory chant of 95,000 people in Melbourne, Australia at the preliminary final saying we are going to the grand final next week and how excited they are, what does it mean for us to respond? So in all of that, just especially because I, I know what it's like, especially because I'm a musician. I walk in and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't want to hear me sing. I even heard that from somebody this morning already. But as we talk about that, what it means to cry that victory. So, I'm conscious that it's just after 9.30. Do we have time to sing one song together before I wrap up? Or? Uh, sure, if anybody <laughs> has to leave right now at 9.30 to leave, we have uh, one song we're going to sing, and I hope we all sing it together. But if you want to leave right now, no problem. This is one of my favorite songs. It was released by Hillsong about 25 years ago. <laughs> but I just think centers on the gospel and the victory of what it means to sing Hosanna to the Lamb who was slain. Can we hold that? Let me see. Yeah, actually, do you want to give a game to advance the slides for me? Sure. There's two of them. Yeah, just go forward on the slides.
salvation, declaring your victory. May we know that on a daily basis. That as we see our God Almighty, and that you have satisfied the price through your Son because of your great love for us. That it is not about us, but about declaring your victory. And resting in that confidence that we have nothing to fear. May we shout out your praises. May we live that in boldness as you continue to work in us that will become more and more like our Savior and know your victory. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, man, for coming. And uh, thank you, Brandon. Brandon, for June.